The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Against it, the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, 
Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we are finishing the story of Jonah, and last week I reminded you that although at first glance it looks like it's the story of the world's worst missionary, it's actually the story of our great God. So as we hear that story, I want to begin with a question. What is God like in your minds? What are the images that you have in your mind for God? What are the words that you have in your mind for God? What's the posture or the orientation of God towards you when you think about Him? And how do you think the world around us would answer those questions? The man on the street, what would they say about God? What words do they use to describe Him? And what can Jonah teach us about what God says about Himself? So you get the story. We know famously Jonah was in the fish. He gets vomited back up, right? He's been the world's worst prophet ever. The fish in the ocean and the storm is all big, God, but not Jonah. He runs away. The fish rescues him when he gets thrown into the ocean, brings him back, and the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. And as Don just read, we're confronted with the story of Jonah's second round with his prophetic commission. So I want to suggest to you this morning that this passage, this portion of Scripture, this story teaches us four things about God. First of all, This passage teaches us that the Lord confronts rebellion, injustice, and sin and calls His people to do the same. The story of Jonah tells us that the Lord confronts rebellion, injustice, and sin and calls His people to do the same. The text makes it very clear. When God comes to Jonah a second time, He says, Say to Nineveh exactly the words that I tell you. And the exact words that the Lord gives to Jonah is 40 days and I'm smiting this place. I'm talking Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm talking about swallowing you up. I'm talking, this is it. Right? Jonah comes with the message that God has given him and it is trouble is a coming. Because of your wickedness and your rebellion and your injustice and sin. And we know that Nineveh had to be a pretty crazy place because if somebody came to you and said that, you'd probably, your first response would probably be like, I'm not that bad. But Nineveh gets it because their first response is like, oh goodness, we are that bad. Everybody stop doing what you're doing, right? They knew as soon as someone brought up wickedness and sin, they're being described, right? And when the king says at the end of his challenge to the city, to not just lament, not just pray, but to turn from your wicked way and the violence that is in your hands, the picture that we get that's made clear is that Nineveh's sin is not just idolatry, worshipping other gods, and it's not just a a collection of individual sins, uh, individually alcoholics or porn addicts or something, although they were probably that too, but that Nineveh has become a city characterized by injustice and unrighteousness and systemic violence from the king on his throne down to the peasant and the street and even their animals are involved. Right? That word violence there, turn from the violence that's in your hands, is a good Old Testament word. It shows up a lot 
In Genesis, when God says, Every inclination of man's heart has become so evil, I'm going to wipe out everybody but Noah with a flood. The way he describes human community is as being violent. Same word. When in the law it says, Don't let a witness rise up in the courtroom and manipulate, manipulate the judicial system. It refers to a witness who would manipulate the judicial system for the sake of the oppressor as a violent witness. In the Psalms, when the Psalmist talks about a city characterized by violence, it talks about a marketplace that oppression and fraud never leave. That word violence can refer to economic systems that oppress and exclude. And Isaiah, the man of violence, is one who rejects peace, who sheds blood, who rejects righteousness and justice. When we hear the king say, every single one of us has got violence in our hands, the image is of a system of hateful, unjust violence in the marketplace, in the home, in the military. And God hates it. God hates it enough to send His prophet a long way away to prophesy condemnation on such unrighteousness, idolatry, and sin. This teaches us something about God. It reminds us that one of God's characteristics is that He hates injustice. He hates oppression. He hates violence. If you think I'm being too strong, Psalm 11.5 says, The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. On the other hand, Psalm 89 tells us that righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. You see, the reason why God is so ticked at the violence of Nineveh is that His rule is characterized by justice and righteousness and peace. God presents Himself as a king. And if you want to know what His kingdom is like, it's right there. Righteousness, justice, peace, human flourishing. That's what I'm like. And Micah 6.8 tells us, because that's what God's like, that's what you're supposed to be like. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with your God. You see, the story of Jonah gives us a glimpse at the wider world of the Bible, which says that the good king over all things, the creator, loves justice and righteousness and equity and peace. And when his people reject that, instead choosing injustice and oppression and idolatry and sin, they find themselves on the receiving end of God's judgment. Because God's hate, God hates it, and He confronts it, and He will not leave it unaddressed. The third confronts rebellion, injustice, and sin, and causes people to do the same. This is pretty much the only thing that Jonah gets right, by the way, in the whole book. He knows this part. He knows that if you're a prophet, one thing you do is you have to call out injustice and oppression and violence and sin. And when we read these texts and think about this world, we are challenged to think about where is the Nineveh-like brokenness in our world? And as we just prayed, I mean, by the way, guys, this sermon, we essentially just prayed our way through it. So we, gloriously, we've already prayed the, the message that God has for us this morning, and now we're just going to talk about it. So think about what we just prayed through, right? I mean, we are in a world torn apart by systems of oppression and injustice and violence. We see it right now in Charlottesville. 
where groups like the neo-Nazis and the Ku Klux Klan are attracting more and more mainstream people into their ideology of white supremacism and hate. If that's not the will of wickedness and the violence that's in our hands, I don't know what is. A few months ago, our very own Rhoda Baines, who's a member here, her sister was shot in a drive-by shooting that took place at a prayer vigil for a woman who had been shot in a drive-by shooting. The cycle of violence and revenge, and violence and revenge, at times, comes to the surface in such a horrifying way that we feel like we're looking Nineveh in the face in our streets. When I think about the payday lenders that are in every corner in my community, in your community, that are literally out, violent and fun, never departing from those marketplaces, we're looking into the eyes of Nineveh, right? I mean, aren't we? Don't you see it? And God hates it. And He confronts it. And He causes people to do the same. And He calls us to confront the Nineveh that's in all of our hearts. Not just the violence of our hands, but the violence of our thoughts towards our enemies. To the gossip that we use to murder our brothers and sisters. To the greed that we allow to separate us from our neighbors. If we are honest with ourselves, the brokenness of Nineveh is at root in the city and it's in root in our hearts. And what Jonah tells us, first of all, about God is that God confronts all of it. God confronts all of it and He calls His people to do the same in our own hearts and in the world. Uh, I got the chance this week to meet a legend of the uh, civil rights movement and also the sanitation worker strike. It was really incredible to hear him tell the story of the sanitation worker strike that was going on right here. But a story that I heard that I did not know was that around the time during the strike while Dr. King was here organizing a group of ministers and I think particularly white ministers were a lot of white ministers were present were deliberating about whether or not to support this movement for justice and they couldn't decide they thought they wanted to but they were working on the language and so they postponed their meeting to a date in the future and the date that they picked turned out to be the day after Dr. King's assassination I want to suggest to you that that is a parable of where the the church so often misses our prophetic command by God to confront injustice and unrighteousness the way He does. It is a parable of the way that we perpetually neglect to care as much as God does about the structures of violence and hatred at work in our society. And because of that, that's why, folks, we're talking about Charlottesville this morning. Because part of our prophetic call is to say that the Klan and neo-Nazism and the alt-right and any ideology of white supremacy is evil and wicked... And if our political and spiritual leaders choose to downplay the wickedness of it, as some of them did this week, it is our responsibility, not to America, not to democracy, but to God, to join with Jonah and say, no, no, there is an unrighteousness and an injustice that evokes the response of God and requires the response of His people. We must be relentless in recognizing that our God confronts injustice, idolatry, oppression, brokenness, sin, and calls us to do the same in our hearts and in the world. But the second thing that we see, which takes us off our feet if we got the first point, 
is that our just king who confronts idolatry and oppression and injustice and sin is willing to forgive idolaters, the unjust, the oppressors, and the sinners. You see, if we're following up, pretend you've never heard the story of Jonah, right? If you've never heard the story of Jonah, all you've got is that God has told Jonah twice to call out judgment on this city. And then Jonah shows up and he says, 40 days more and this city will be overturned. If you've ever been to a like street evangelism thing, you know this is terrible, a terrible sermon. You're supposed to say, 40 more days and you'll be overturned, but if you come down front and fill out the pew card, you can spend an eternity in heaven. That's what Jonah's supposed to have said. He didn't say that though. He just said, it's happening folks. He does not open the door for repentance at all. It comes as a word of condemnation. And if we're reading along and we find out that as soon as they hear it, all these wicked, unjust, oppressive, violent Ninevites start like, putting on sackcloth and ripping off their clothes and running around half naked with the animals and praying and stuff, and saying, so we got to turn over what we're doing, we have this question, what's going to happen? Right? And, 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 and seeped in a culture that says, you know, you can have deathbed conversions and all that stuff, we assume that God will forgive them. But they don't. They don't assume that. The question comes to power in the king's words. Do these things. Repent. Pray. Turn from your violence. Who knows? Maybe God will forgive. They cast themselves on the hope of a who knows. And at that verse, we all go, What's going to happen? What's God like? Will He forgive? How long have they been oppressing? How long have they been murderers and adulterers? How long have they been attacking us as Israel? And how long are they going to... Is this quick repentance really going to be accepted? Will God forgive even Ninevites? Even neo-Nazis? Even us? And the incredible message of the story is yes. God will forgive any who truly turn to Him. Any. Anybody. Anybody. Now, note, however, before we move too quickly through that, what actually repenting looks like. It's, it's interesting. The scholar tells that it's all, everything in Jonah is ironic. So one of the great ironies of this book is that the worst people in the story on paper do some of the best repentance in all of the Old Testament. Right? They act like the best repenters ever. And what does it consist of? Sackcloth and ashes. Really feel bad about what's going on. Really feel, really regret and lament the brokenness that our sin has caused other people. Pray fervently. You don't just feel bad, you turn that to God. You get on your knees. And then turn from this wickedness, right? And repentance here, as it does everywhere in the Bible, does not simply mean to feel bad, does not simply mean to say sorry, it means a turning from one road for another. And the other Jonah uses a wordplay here, and what he says is, when when the uh, Ninevites repented of their wickedness, God repented of His judgment. When the Ninevites turned from their death, culture of death and injustice, they found that God had turned from His judgment of death on their heads. God is willing to repent if we will truly encounter Him. This is not easy believism. This is not cheap grace. This is not sign the pledge card and go back to what you're doing. This is not offer you fire insurance. We continue to persist in our violence and injustice and sin and idolatry. 
God does not give you that out, by the way. So if you think you've taken it, Genesis is a warning. We are all in danger because of our sin. And the only hope is actually turning towards the living God and away from the mess that we've made of our lives. Turning towards Him. So number one, we learn our just king confronts idolatry, oppression, injustice, etc. But he forgives idolaters, unjust people, oppressors, and etc. And that leaves us with the question, why does he do that? So the third thing that we see in Jonah is that our just king's forgiveness is grounded in who he is and what he's doing. Our just king's willingness to forgive is grounded in who he is and what he's doing. In other words, miraculously, God forgives idolaters and oppressors and neo-Nazis and racists and bigots and hateful people and idolaters and adulterers because that's who he is and that's what he's doing. When Jonah is, you know... uh, we, I, I thought we would have an easy time getting through Jonah in two weeks. I wish we had four because uh, we're moving so quickly. But when Jonah is outside the city complaining and talking to God, he states one of the most beautiful truths in the Old Testament. He recognizes that the reason why Nineveh is not a smoldering pile of ash, right, is that he knows something about God. And this is what he knows about God. Jonah says, For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. In other words, Jonah says, I know you didn't destroy those Ninevites because you're... You... Because of who you are! Steadfast love, mercy, kindness, grace, ready to turn from punishment that you yourself announced. God is like me panting at my worst when I'm like if you do that I'm going to send you to your room and then they do it and they say I feel bad and I don't send you to my room right and all the parenting books say that's not good and it's not good by the way it's not good parenting but it's good guarding apparently God is so committed to love and steadfast kindness and mercy it's who he is right and this lie about God is one that Jonah stole from God himself we hear these words first in Exodus. Maybe you remember the story. Uh, God has brought Israel out of Egypt. He's liberated them from injustice and oppression. He's brought them to the mountain. He's giving them a good law. Moses is up there for like 15 minutes too long for them. And they build a golden calf and start worshiping it. Right? And God looks down and sees His people who He just rescued from idolatry and oppression and all that stuff. And they're worshiping another God. And He gets super ticked. He says, watch out Moses. I'm going to burn the heck out of these people. Fire Move out of the way, right? And Moses says, no, 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 please, please don't do that, God. Not good, not good. That's not good. Don't do that. And God says, I'll re- I won't do it. I'll spare them. And Moses is like, really? That worked? Show me your glory. Right? Show me your glory. Show me what is most incredible about you, God. And God says, it will overwhelm you. It might kill you if you get it all at once. Let me hide you in the rock. Exodus says the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord said, this is what is true about me. This is who I am. This is my resume. This is my calling card. This is my glory. What he said was, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is what God is like all the way down. That is the glory of the Creator King. Yes, 
as God Himself will go on to say in that very passage, He is willing to bring judgment on those who continue to rebel. But His heart is for mercy. For a kindness that is steadfast, that you can count on. And I wonder how many of us really believe that's what God is like. How many people in our world really believe that the character of God, the quality that God treasures the most about Himself, the way God would describe His own glory, is not His holiness or His otherness or not His hugeness or even His creativeness. If God's going to tell you what His glory is, this. I am merciful and loving and gracious and forgiving all the way down. Do you believe that? If you are in the church... Do you think that's the message that people are getting from the way we live our lives? If you're not a Christian here this morning, is this the message that you've heard about God? Somehow I doubt it. In fact, even the way that we talk about Jesus sometimes screws this up. Sometimes the way that we talk about Jesus is like the Father was really angry and wanted to beat us up. And Jesus got in the way. Well guys, this is hundreds of years before Jesus. Thousands of years before Jesus. The only God in heaven and on earth said, you want to know what I'm like? Loving, forgiving, merciful, ready to turn from judgment. That's who I am. That's who I am. I cry every time we sing that song. You are for us. You are not against us. You are for us. You are not against us. And even in judgment, even in judgment... If we look at the text, God is trying to get up to turn from what is bad for us. See, the truth that we prayed about, that we know about, that we see even in the story, if we had time to go into it, is that violence and oppression and, and idolatry and rebellion isn't just bad for the victims, it's bad for the perpetrators. The mess that we've made of our lives is bad for all of us. And so, yes, God confronts it. But He does it with the hope and the desire to bring all to repentance. But God's forgiveness isn't just grounded in who He is. It's also grounded in what He's doing. What He's doing with Jonah and what He's doing with Nineveh. To see this, I've never seen this before. Uh, we have to really get what's going on with the plant, the weird plant thing at the end. It's an object lesson, obviously. Uh, so God's treating Jonah like a kindergartner. But uh, it's not that clear to me on first sight what he's trying to teach. Um, so, you know, what's that about? Well, it, what we have to recognize is that the plant grows up over Jonah's head and provides him relief. It provides him rescue. The sort of rescue that he's mad at God for giving to Nineveh. And then when the plant dies, Jonah's really ticked about it, that this plant has died. He's grieved, right? Grieved enough to die. He's suicidal again. And then God draws a comparison between the plant and Nineveh. So listen to how uh, one scholar, who is this? Um, Sheldon Blank paraphrases Lord's words to Jonah. Just listen to this. It's as if the Lord says, Let us analyze this anger of yours, Jonah. It represents your concern over your beloved plants. But what did it really mean to you? Your attachment to it could not be very deep, for it's here one day, gone the next. Your concern was dictated by self-interest, not by genuine love. You never had for it the devotion of the gardener. If you feel as badly as you do, what would you expect a gardener to feel like who tended a plant and watched it grow? only to see it wither and die, poor thing. And this is how I, the Lord, feel about Nineveh, 
only much more so. All those people, all those animals, I know them. I have cherished them all these years. Nineveh has cost me no end of effort, and they mean the world to me. Your pain is nothing to mine when I contemplate their destruction. What the author is capturing is that the Ninevites too are not just the recipients of God's mercy, they are part of His plan. They are part of His plan. God does not just want to spare these violent terrorists. He wants to restore them to their role as people participating in His kingdom. The prophet Isaiah said it this way when he looked ahead to what God was doing. And he said, In that day Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts had blessed, saying, say, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, where Nineveh is, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. And once God points out that in that passage, what God's doing is He's taking His special pet name for Israel, and He's giving it to Israel's enemies. And the message could not be clearer. As Christians, we know, like Israel knew, that God had plans for us, purposes for us, wants to use us for something in His world. And the shocking, crazy news is that God has those same plans for Nineveh. God has those same plans for the oppressor. God has those same plans for the violent. God does not just want to rescue us from the horror of our sin, but to restore us to our role in His world. Leslie Allen puts it this way. I love this. Justice is better served for God by reformed characters than by corpses. God's deepest intent is thus achieved, for He does not want to perish, but wants all to come to repentance. So we've got a picture, a story that confronts us with a God who confronts injustice, oppression, idolatry, and sin, but who forgives and idolaters and sinners if they will willingly embrace Him. And He does these things precisely because He is love and mercy and grace all the way down and His purposes are for a people that includes everybody, even the wicked. But fourth, and finally, this story teaches us that our just King's steadfast love for our enemies forces us to choose between this God and idol of our own making. See, when Jonah confronts this God, he has to choose between Yahweh, the Lord, the God who's been driving the story, or an idol of his own making. What do I mean by that? Jonah knew what God was like. What he was surprised about was that God was treating his enemies, the powerful oppressive tyrants, the same way that he treated his friends. Knew, Jonah knew that the only way that Israel existed was by God's kindness and, and forgiveness. But he didn't expect him to extend that kindness and forgiveness to those people. Yes, Jonah's problem is not with what God does. Jonah's problem is with who God is. Jonah would prefer a tribal God who hates who Jonah hates, who does what Jonah thinks is best be like the weapon that his people want to smite their enemies. And the story confronts Jonah. Who, which God will you follow? Which God will you believe? Can you blame Jonah? If you really compare these Assyrians to like the neo-Nazis, or frankly the Nazis, or the Klan, 
you know, people who burned crosses and held a whole community in fear of terrorism and tyranny. Can you really believe or really blame Jonah for not wanting God to treat those people who've caused us so much pain the way he's treated us? I mean, if you walk away thinking Jonah's a pretty dumb guy, I don't think you've gotten the story. I don't think you've been confronted yet with how much God requires of you to love your enemies because of how much He loves them. This is a horrifying message. In fact, frankly, because people have downplayed uh, the tragedy in Charlottesville and the role of the supremacists in it, I actually thought about changing what I was saying in this sermon. Because I didn't want you to misunderstand and think that somehow, by offering this message of grace to all, I was undermining the severity of the crimes that were committed. I was genuinely worried about preaching this message because that's the point! That's the point! People beyond grace, people beyond salvation, people whose ideology and orientation is against us in every way, in the most extreme fashion imaginable, are nevertheless the Ninevites that God longs to bring to repentance and to include among His people. It is a horrifying message. It is a dreadful thing not just to fall into the hands of a wrathful God. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a God who loves this much and requires us to love in the same way. It is terrifying. And it is a message that is scary and dangerous and impossible. And it's God's and He gives it to us. I want to suggest to you that the only road to mercy for Jonah and the only road to mercy for us is through this enemy-loving God who stands before us. Or to put it the way Jesus put it in shockingly, uh, shocking words that we think are theologically scandalous. If you forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. See, I think what the book of Jonah is it confronts us with false gods that we worship. We really have three options. We can try to worship a God who's so far away that He really doesn't mind so much our sin or the sins of the world. A God who sins just far enough away that we're not on the hook for confronting the injustice in our hearts and the injustice in our world. We can worship a God who can't be bothered about Charlottesville or our gossip addiction or our commitment to pornography or the way that we hurt our neighbor or the way that we hold on to our rage. We can't be bothered and so is irrelevant the brokenness of the world on the ground. We can worship that God, but it won't be God. It'll be an idol. Or we can worship a God who smites who we want to smite, who allows us to feel self-righteous in our rage and injustice who supports our cause to chase out the idolatry and oppression in others while ignoring the idolatry and oppression in our own hearts. We can try to embrace a God who's got just as much hate and rage as anybody on the planet because He's wielding that hate and rage against the people who deserve it. Henry now, in a speech uh, to protesters, once said, When our words and our only angry curses, our hands only clenched fists, and our eyes filled with hostile gazes, then we are trying to end a war with a war. We add narrow-mindedness to narrow-mindedness, hostility to hostility, fear to fear, and violence to violence. Therefore, we are called today 
to confess that the evil we are protesting against is alive in our own selves. But we can reject that God and choose an idol that we like. Uh, who Anne Lamott says we can know we've made in our own image but he hates the same people we do. Two idols. One far enough away not to matter. One an angry war god on our side. Or the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hates injustice so much that he is going to reform the unjust. Who hates oppression so much that he died at the hands of the oppressor to set both oppressor and oppressed free. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who rose from the dead and breathed God's Spirit on His people and said, As the Father sends me, so send I you. And you know, that's the step we can't get from Jonah, by the way. From Jonah we can learn the injustice and confronts it. We can learn that He offers forgiveness to everybody involved. We can learn that He offers forgiveness because He is love and steadfast mercy and grace all the way down and has purposes for everybody. And we can give up on the idols that aren't God. But what we can't do with just Jonah, I'm afraid, is really become people who love our enemies. Really become people who love God enough to open our hands to our own sin and the sins of others. Who can really confront injustice while genuinely hoping to draw all to repentance. We can't do that with just Jonah. But the good news is that Jesus stands in our presence, still breathing that Holy Spirit on us, who is welcome here to transform our hearts, to remake us in Christ's image, to send us out as He was sent, to love and serve and welcome even our enemies. We worship a God who wants to renew us and restore us for that work. And if you are here and you're one of the Ninevites and you come wondering whether there's any way that God could accept you or love you given all that you've done, I want to tell you that the story of Jonah says a resounding yes. God will accept you and forgive you because that's who He is. And if you want to find out how to experience salvation and cleansing and forgiveness and healing from all that is against you through accepting Jesus as your King, please come down front and pray with the elders and uh, community group leaders who can go ahead and come this way. And if you're more like me in the story, a self-righteous, prideful Jonah would-be prophet who harbors the same anger and rage in our hearts as that which we condemn in the world. Jesus is here for you too. Jesus can cast down the idols in your hearts too. Jesus can equip us and transform us for the work that He has called us and commanded us to do. And that's good news for all of us. Let us pray to meet that God today. Jesus, we ask that Your Holy Spirit would be welcome here. Welcome us Ninevites. Welcome to us Jonahs. Welcome to us who have Nineveh and Jonah at war in our hearts. Lord, we pray that Your Holy Spirit would be welcome here to transform and renew us and save us and rescue us and restore us to Your work in the world. And God, in particular, we pray that You would give us hearts that love You and are willing, because You love our enemies, to love our enemies as well. We pray these things in Your name. Amen.